0: Ah. You're listening to Design Tomorrow.
1: Hi, kids. Keep yourself in top condition. Drink Ovaltine every day. What you need is some Alka Seltzer. Yoo hoo hoo. Yoo-hoo. Right now, this is Dennis James reminding you to keep smoking. I love Baco. It's rich in chocolate tea. The astronauts do some things you do. In space, they drank tanks. If you believe in magic, then I've got a place for you. You know this sound. What's in this little blue egg that keeps Barbara Eden looking slim and trim? Maybe
0: you've heard some of it before, but that's not exactly what I mean.
1: Honeycomb presents...
0: You know this sound.
1: The new video computer system by Atari.
0: What it is, how it works, what it's for.
1: Sometimes you feel like a nut.
0: And you probably feel a certain way about it without having to know anything, really. Really? About it specifically.
1: Remind you of anybody's face?
0: Advertising is that recognizable. It It has a way about it, a form that we can identify immediately. We've been well trained over our lifetimes to spot it right away on the streets we travel, on the pages we read. On the screens we watch, waving, winking, and calling out to us.
1: Pardon me. Would you have any gray poupon?
0: And even whispering in our ears when there's nothing to look at. Have you
1: heard the news?
0: Advertising is everywhere.
1: Introducing the chicken choice deal.
0: And so we know it well.
1: Just one taste of honey bunches of oat cereal and you'll love it instantly.
0: I wonder, though, whether that, the brain rewiring power of the ubiquity of advertising, is a good thing for us. What you want? A good thing for advertising. For generations, advertising has clung to cultural experiences. It's something that has defined its existence in relation to other things.
1: The Jetsons, brought to you by Scotch brand Magic Mending Tape.
0: In between television programs, in the margins of an article, before the main attraction at a theater. But that's not really true anymore. Almost two decades into the 21st century, advertising is much bigger and blurrier than that.
1: I've been driving a Lincoln since long before anybody paid me to drive one.
0: I want to ask what role advertising plays in our world today. Didn't do it to make a statement. How does a form of media, always known as an associated form, as something that sips from the attention river flowing to and from other things, how does it function when the complexity of those waterways has exponentially increased?
1: Mom? Dad? Hey Google, what's on my calendar
0: today? You have one event called House to Yourself. Oh yeah. Our information sources, whether for entertainment, for reference, or something else, are so many and so varied and so subtly ensconced in our lives today. Alexa, what do you do? I can play
1: music, answer questions, get the news and weather.
0: So what does it mean for all of it to also carry advertising?
1: Hey Siri, give me a lift ride to LAX. Lyft can get you a lift in 60 seconds.
0: Is that something we can really stand? Is that something our minds can handle? You're listening to Design Tomorrow. I'm Chris Butler. Stay tuned.
1: Hey Siri, you're the best. Thanks, Mr. Big, bald and beautiful. I love you too.
0: Design Tomorrow is a podcast about design, technology, and being human, which, admittedly, is a lot to be about. But in all things, we hope to grow in our awareness that what we do and think today can create a better tomorrow. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Design Tomorrow. Just leave all the vowels out. That's at D-S-G-N-T-M-R-R-W. You can also visit the show's website at designtomorrow.co. And if you want to get in touch directly, you can email me at chris at designtomorrow.co. I'd love to hear from you. And now, let's get back to the show.
1: You know, if you were to follow a busy doctor as he makes his daily round of calls, you'd find yourself having a mighty busy time keeping up with him. Time out for many men of medicine usually means just long enough to enjoy a cigarette.
0: Advertising is a noisy anachronism. It's a ghost, lingering long past its time, desperately holding on to its past purpose and usefulness, popping up in every corner of its old house, and annoying the people who live there now. People who never really knew and don't care that it's dead. They'd say, go to the light, advertising, if they cared, but they don't. Instead, they say, get out of my way. Advertising is the royal family, or powdered wigs in English courts, or navy sidecaps. It's the way because it's the way. Important because it's important. But really, a useless waste of time that looks more and more ridiculous the further away from it you get. Advertising is a plant left untended and overgrown, its branches sprawled out so far from its roots that it will eventually starve itself. Haste the day. All clever metaphors aside, the point is that it wasn't always this way. In the Mad Men days, advertising made more sense than it does now. Practical sense.
1: This is Station WJSV. Our next program will come to you at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning.
0: We had fewer sources of discovery, less leisure time, and fewer consumer options to choose from.
1: This is Station WABC-TV, New York Channel 7, key station in the ABC television network. Now speaking for the entire staff, this is Ed Williams wishing you a pleasant good night and inviting you to join us this morning at 5.15 for more outstanding entertainment on Channel 7.
0: In the context in which it was used, advertising was, in many cases, much more straightforward, artful, and novel. Periodicals were probably the most intriguing support for advertising, with magazines offering national and regional advertisers a way to more precisely target a particular interest-based demographic spread over greater distances, and newspapers giving local advertisers access to the people next door, morning and evening. Now, radio and television programming was much more limited. This was a time when radio silence and off-the-air were phrases used non-metaphorically which made tuning in a much more intentional and important decision. For advertisers, this offered the largest, most wrapped attention possible. And by the 1950s, television had already bumped radio out of the preferred media slot for most Americans, shifting its programming focus from scripted material to music, which of course came with a different, less advertising-subsidized economic
1: structure. That's shooting from Hot Tuna. That's on the latest America's Choice. Brings it up to 10 after 12 now. Hello there, I'm Ann Anderson, WYSP. want a bird's-eye view of a hippotamus, ride the monorail at the lively Philadelphia Zoo. By
0: 1970, there were still only 700 UHF and VHF channels. Quite a few, yes, but there are 1,300 now. And we didn't get basic cable until 1976. Oh, and surfaces... Posters and billboards. Posters were still art, able to be studied and enjoyed by passers-by on foot and certainly often created that way. And billboards were still somewhat of a novel approach, the object of a growing population of commuting motorists and their available attention at highway speeds. Each of these forms of advertising was appropriate to the way we lived then and certainly to the manner in which it leaned on the technology of the time. Overall, This was a media landscape that allowed for much greater spans of quiet, at least in terms of advertising as noise to content's signal. And it was a landscape over which the lines between what was advertising and what was not were drawn much more clearly. Here's the problem. None of this is true today.
1: A road diverges in the desert. Lexus.
0: Today's media landscape is a hoarder's den, and advertising is, well, pick whatever thing that shouldn't be piled up in the living space of a sane human being. Every empty water bottle you've ever drained, someone else's takeout trash, heaps and piles of junk. Advertising as we know it has no place in today's world for one simple reason. Volume. The amount of media produced today far exceeds what was produced when our existing advertising models took shape. That model is based upon attachment and attention, attaching advertising to media and taking a share of its attention. In 1970, the standard advertising-to-content ratio was 0.85 to 1, or about 46% advertising. So in practical terms, that meant that as you flipped through a magazine back then, a bit less than every other page would have been advertising. Since then, of course, the ratio has changed. In 2011, the average had risen to about 55% advertising, 45% content, although I've heard rumors that some magazines, like Vogue, can be up to closer to 77% ads. So to better visualize this, that means that a 120-page magazine went from having 55 pages of advertising to 66. Now, 11 pages may not seem like a huge jump, but experienced over the course of flipping through a magazine from beginning to end, it's going to be noticeable. Provided, of course, that you're still able to discern what is and what is not an ad. To that point... I remember righteously canceling my subscription to Wired magazine way back in 2004 after flipping through an issue and realizing that a several-page section that I had been reading for a few minutes was in fact advertising and not actual Wired content. I was aghast. And yes, I also eventually noticed the small advertisement label hiding out at the top of the page, but it was clearly intended to be missed. This wasn't a traditional ad, nor was it the sort of content you might consider product placement, Something like 10 new gadgets you should buy. It was an ad pretending to be a Wired article, and it looked a lot like one. What kind of strategy is that, other than cynical bait and switch that tips the hands of the publication, who say we no longer have any leverage in our relationship with the advertisers and don't believe our readers are intelligent enough to notice, and the advertisers who say, well, we don't believe we can convince intelligent people to consider our product without manipulating them. This is, of course, a real shame. But it's not the biggest issue I'm going to complain about. I mean, we're talking about dying media here. Magazines are dying. That ads are taking them over may make it look like they are the disease. Like a spreading cancer. But they're just the maggots. And eventually, they'll have nothing left to eat. Why? Because of the internet. Because we're making new media, more media, our own media. Because it moves faster. And our attention goes with it. Ads want to attach to wherever our attention is, and that's the big problem. Our attention is limited, yet our capacity to produce media, all of which makes some claim on our attention, has far exceeded our capacity to take it in, and its own capacity to support some kind of attached message. That's the irony of our modern technological situation, with more options for attention spend than ever before, and less entropy than ever before, because, after all, every web page. Every song, every book, every video, as well as every picture you've ever taken and every bite-sized thought you posted to a social network is just a thumb, swipe, and tap away, there are, of course, more options for advertising than ever before. Now, today's official digital advertising ratios are actually pretty hard to come by, but we can be certain that they're much higher than in print. For example, the number of advertisers on Facebook doubled in just six months last year, But the number of active users did not. So it's simple math, the ratio went up there. And if you're an active Instagrammer, you've probably noticed. But also, you might actually be kind of happy with this arrangement. According to a recent study, 72% of Instagram users reported making a purchase decision after seeing something on Instagram, with the most popular categories being clothing, makeup, shoes, and jewelry. 72%. Now, as of this year, there are an estimated 1 billion active monthly Instagram users. So, some quick math here. That means 720 million people acting on the advertisements that they see in between selfies, plates of food, and snaps of your kids. So what about the other social networks? Well, back in 2016, Twitter was adding advertisers by a year-over-year 90% increase. That is a lot. And again, we all know Twitter was not growing its user base by those same kinds of numbers. In fact, in the US, user growth was projected at less than 1% for this year. So while advertisers had some catching up to do, the closer they got to doing that, the higher the advertising to content ratio. See, that's the problem, I think. It may not be an immediate one, but it can't possibly not be one long-term. With so many claims on our attention, the fatigue we experience is enormous. No matter what we choose to give that attention to, whether it has advertising or not, the claim to our attention, the voice, the flashing image, the string of text saying, hey, look at me, that itself costs something, which leaves little to no energy or patience for a claim that costs more than just attention, for the claim that's actually selling you something.
1: A neat candy bar. Boy, is it crispy. Sounds good. Smells peanutty. What do you call
0: it? Years ago, we thought little of sitting through 10 minutes or more of commercials over the course of a 30-minute sitcom. But today, we frenetically click that skip ad button when we can. We mute the player when we can't or close the tab entirely after one look at a timeline decorated with little yellow gaps and think, no, 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 no. And that's the free video. On Hulu for example, $5.99 per month gets you access, which is pretty cheap, but not freedom from watching the same ad 3 or 4 times over the course of 30 minutes. What are you guys
1: playing? Supposed to be playing Game of War, but this one player keeps kicking my ass. Supposed to be playing Game of War, but this one player keeps kicking my ass. Keeps kicking my ass.
0: Really, has nobody over there suggested maybe showing a different ad every time? I suppose they must have made some deeply cynical, analytics-driven assessment here that 95% of watchers will eventually grow to hate Hulu for giving them the clockwork orange treatment, but they'll probably stick around anyway, and 5% will submit to it and actually buy some of the B-list junk that they've let barnacle to their B-list programming. (sighs) Sorry, I know Hulu has some good stuff, and maybe I'm being too harsh on advertising. After all, it's not that we suddenly have a justifiable complaint against the idea of advertising. Yes, advertising attaches itself to media to draw upon its attention, but it's not entirely fair to characterize all advertising simply as an attention parasite. The economics of publishing bear that out, in that any publication would cost far more were there no advertisers paying part of the bill. Now surely the producers of the shows on a network like Hulu think that their programming is more valuable than whatever tiny bit of a watcher's $5.99 can be attributed to it. Evidently, the difference is made up by whatever the advertisers are paying. Otherwise, we'd be paying more. So it's not entirely okay to feel indignant over having to watch a pre-roll ad before a TV show that we're otherwise paying little to nothing more to see. But we do, don't we? Ads, even the useful ones, annoy us because the amount of content we take in on a daily basis has elevated the amount of advertising to the point where any ad is going to be annoying especially one that might last up to a minute when the silly cat video it's barnacled to is barely that long itself. Much in the same way that sudden abundance, albeit made possible by blatant piracy through the economic structure of the music industry in disarray, the relatively sudden ubiquity of all forms of content have thrown off the balance of advertising to such a degree as to be unrecoverable short of a return to the pre-internet way of life. Meanwhile... Isn't non-traditional advertising obviously more effective? How can it not be? Now I took a mental inventory of the things I own that have recognizable logos on them, which is a long list that became more and more disturbing to me as I added to it, by the way. And not one of them came to me by way of a traditional ad. Not one. Now you should do the same. How many things have you bought in the last few years because you saw a traditional ad? I bet very few. So, how did you come to know that any of that stuff existed? That is an interesting question, and one that gets us into the semantic weeds, because all the things that tend to nudge me closer to purchase are the things that tend to fall under the category of marketing, not advertising. So, what's the difference? Right. I'm honestly not sure, and I've worked in this space for 15 years. I recently read a pretty unhelpful distinction that I'll paraphrase in this way. Marketing is the way in which you convince potential buyers that you have the right product for them. Advertising is how you communicate to them the existence of that product. Okay, but what if the thing that made a product's existence known to me was the same thing that convinced me to buy it? Like when I bought a pair of boots a few years ago, I had googled most durable boots, which took me to a blog post reviewing a pair of boots that I had never heard of before, but ended up purchasing just a few days later. So, was that blog marketing or advertising? Does it really matter? What matters is that the economics of content marketing, regardless of whether it's really any different from advertising at this point, remains substantially different from the economics of advertising. Same thing for the UX of content marketing versus the UX of advertising. As a guy who just wanted to buy some boots, the preferred experience is clear, and so I look around and wonder that about most every product.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you. Welcome to the Steve Jobs Theater.
0: Our friends Apple, for example, would you call their big events marketing or advertising? I mean, we don't hear, officially anyway, about their products until these events, but we hear a great deal at these events about how these products will work and why they're the right products for us. Sounds like marketing. Or maybe the distinction just doesn't really exist anymore. I don't know. Now, obviously, I'm as likely to go down the rabbit hole of pedantry as anyone, but this particular debate is just not that interesting to me. So I'm going to stick with a distinction that makes sense in my mind, and it's this. Advertising is the stuff that works by attaching itself to media. And marketing is the stuff that can work on its own. Not that this makes any of it more likable. You could be the gloopiest of Augustus gloops, the biggest glutton in the world. But if I dropped you in a pacific ocean of cookies and candies and cakes with no life preserver, I'll bet just a few minutes of treading to keep from drowning in sugar would turn you around. Nor does the presence of some useful marketing solve the larger problem that the overall volume of advertising and marketing create in our world. There are fundamental social values that have skewed as well. For one thing, we have gone from content being the luxury to quiet being the luxury. Matthew Crawford, writing for the New York Times, puts it well. He says, Attention is a resource. A person only has so much of it. And yet we've auctioned off more and more of our public space to private commercial interests with their constant demands on us to look at the products on display or simply absorb some bit of corporate messaging. Lately, our self-appointed disruptors have opened up a new frontier of capitalism, complete with its own frontier ethic, to boldly dig up and monetize every bit of private headspace by appropriating our collective attention. In the process, we have sacrificed silence The condition of not being addressed, and just as clean air makes it possible to breathe, silence makes it possible to think. What if we saw attention in the same way that we saw air or water, as a valuable resource that we hold in common? Perhaps if we can envision an attentional commons, then we could figure out how to protect it. The sad state of this commons is on display everywhere. End quote. Now, who could read that and not punctuate it with their own amen? Yet, Crawford had to have been aware of the not-so-subtle irony of these very words being surrounded by four competing demands for a reader's attention. Two of which made by the New York Times itself to turn away from this article only three paragraphs in and tumble down the rabbit hole of their archives or their store, and two others from traditional advertisers that somehow still believe that attention can be divided across countless demands, regardless of how utterly irrelevant they might be to the present context. Otherwise, who could possibly account for the random internet diptych of a couple hundred earnest words appealing for silence coupled with an ad for Purina One Dog Chow the size of an iPhone screen? Good lord, where is the jungle for quiet? Today's Upton Sinclair is probably out there somewhere, tweeting or blogging for a corporation, and any deliverance from their current obscurity would probably come with Google AdSense. Just the other evening, I was watching the second chapter of Ken Burns' series The Roosevelts, which recounts Theodore Roosevelt's presidencies in great detail including his rather risky battle to regulate the rampant avarice of big bosses like J.P. Morgan and his less risky but no less ambitious effort to preserve the wilderness throughout much of the western United States. Now, several times through the program, I thought to myself, we need another president like him. Roosevelt had never before seen the Grand Canyon, and he was overwhelmed by the
1: vista from the South Rim.
0: And yes, I'm ignoring at least here his failings and scruples of which there were many and would certainly make him a rather unappealing candidate today. But someone to protect the incorporeal commons, to beat back the advances of corporatism and consumerism, to again acknowledge on behalf of the state the fullness of human lives. That we are not simply consumers of resources, drawers upon entitlements, picketers, shoppers, and of course voters, but living in the fullest sense of the word. And that the intangibles of life, love, community, peace and quiet, among many more, are also natural resources in need of conservation. So what that Teddy's personal motivations for preserving the wild were probably suspect. So there'd be always a place teeming with beasts to shoot and future heads to mount in state dining rooms. We got a vast, majestic space that stands in opposition to our striving, our towers of Babel, our bickering, our hoarding, our waste and our noise. Now, conservation, of course, is not an economic model. In fact, it's quite often the contrary, an imbalance on the balance sheet an investment, an ethic, and yet in the economics of attention, silence is ironically worth more than its opposite. You get the podcast for free, but if you want just the podcast as an ad free, you've got to pay for that. You get the too-big-to-regulate audio and video universe of YouTube in which you can probably watch just about anything for at least some time for free. But with pre-roll and interruptive ads, or you can pay Apple, Amazon, Google Play, Netflix, or a long list of other providers for the clean version. Untainted by advertising, slicing and dicing into parts, or the degradation of crappy video codecs. Silence premiums aren't just a digital thing. They've found their way into the real world, too. As again, Matthew Crawford goes on to point out. Crawford writes, Silence is now offered as a luxury good. In the business class lounge at Charles de Gaulle Airport, I heard only the occasional tinkling of a spoon against China. I saw no advertisements on the walls. This silence, more than any other feature, is what makes it feel genuinely luxurious. When you step inside and the automatic doors whoosh shut behind you, the difference is nearly tactile, like slipping out of haircloth into satin. Your brow unfurrows, your neck muscles relax. After 20 minutes, you no longer feel exhausted. Because we've allowed our attention to be monetized, if you want yours back, you're going to have to pay for it. End quote. Once a friend texted me in response to something similarly powerful, profound, upsetting, and overwhelmingly true. She wrote, Sobs in the presence of truth. So yeah, that. What's to be done? Do we decouple advertising and content and pay individually for everything? Unlikely. Having so many options for watching television, for example, seems like a good thing as far as variety and choices are concerned. But economically speaking, decabling often ends up just as expensive, if not more, than a cable subscription. Sure, we pay this gross amount to Time Warner Cable when we really just want a small subset of the channels and the programming they're selling, But to gather that stuff on our own by way of Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO, Hulu, etc., etc., etc. ends up costing the same, if not more. And so would you pay for every individual blog, podcast, and radio show that you consume? In addition to the TV you watch, would you pay double for every movie ticket? Something like that could be possible. Jaron Lanier has written entire books about that. In both You Are Not a Gadget and the book he published after that one called Who Owns the Future?, Lanier discusses a model for media that, as he puts it, offers the liberty of capitalism with the equity of socialism. Here's Lanier himself.
1: The vision I still like that was never explored was the, the original one presented with the very idea of, of connected media, of links and so forth. The guy who invented the idea of the link was uh, Ted Nelson, who is uh, still with us and uh Almost impossible to understand, and it's a shame because I think his original idea was really the best idea before the web was born, uh, even before the internet was first turned on in its little tiny baby steps. He had been conceiving of something very much like the web, and. Uh, the way he saw it is everybody would have access to everything but there would be little micropayments flowing around constantly so if somebody derived something from from your work they would be able to figure out it was really you so nothing would be anonymous and little pennies would flow to you and more and more people would find a way to make a living uh, from creativity Uh, and what we have instead is a world where uh, creativity flows around for free because we're all supposed to be part of this the creative commons and so forth and meanwhile we're told to become Uh, more physical in our way of making a living to really build and sell things, make t-shirts or something. So, uh, you know, technology's been helping us climb up Maslow's pyramid to have more and more enlightened and intellectual and creative ways to make a living and now suddenly we're climbing back down instead of continuing the climb upward. And I think it's a terrible wrong turn. And so Ted's original idea of sort of just a universal micropayment with attribution, I think it's a beautiful notion. And so then everything would be accessible, but it would, and it wouldn't be free, but it would be affordable.
0: What's interesting to me about how Jaron Lanier frames the value of a micropayment system is that he doesn't mention advertising at all. His point is that the economics that govern creative output are harmful to the essence of creativity. That creativity largely goes unacknowledged because economic structures bury the bulk of it while elevating a few voices and ideas here and there and making them ubiquitous. That means that if you and I want to put an idea or a creation out there into the same world in which Disney exists, we have to hustle and scrape by, often losing money just in the effort to expose our work. Forget getting paid for it. Now, I imagine that some of you listening are saying, hold on a second. That's not exactly how it works. There is a path for independent creators to get their work out there. It's called advertising. You put yourself out there on YouTube, for example, enable ads, and as more people see your stuff, you get a cut of whatever the advertisers pay Google. Well, sure, you get a cut. But that cut is a fraction of pennies unless lots and lots of people watch your video. And really, to make that model work, you have to make lots and lots of videos so that your audience, however modest it may be, can drive your overall play counts up. Advertisements want attention, and they can't get it on their own. And so the value advertisers assign to the content they bind their ads to is completely determined by volume. What Lanier is describing is totally different than that. In a micropayment system, there's an inherent, assigned value to the content itself, and there's a direct connection between the payer and their access to it. Now again, you might be saying, yes, we have this. It's called content subscriptions, or it's called Patreon. But no, not really. A fully supported web of connection the likes of which Lanier describes ensures payment for access even on the smallest scale, such that the payments themselves can be trivial, but the overall financial benefit to all creators can be substantial. A rising tide lifts all boats, as it were. Content subscriptions and digital patronage systems are a step toward that, but they are structured with old-fashioned ratios in mind. Patronage comes from a time when there were fewer artists than non-artists and fewer benefactors than artists which also meant that there was less content operating as an economic and cultural force. Back then, the vast majority of content, and I put that in air quotes, was freely exchanged, shared through stories, songs, and games owned by no one. Back then. Whether the future is a digitally-enabled utopia of informational exchange supported by an almost invisible flow of micropayments or an attention depression, of finally running up against the limits of our attention which further consolidates the monetized voices of our culture? I don't know. Whatever it is, it won't likely be a willing return to the old ways. We've simply outgrown them. Literally, we are too many to manage our resources, tangible and intangible alike, the way we once did. Centuries ago, a Michelangelo was free to make art thanks to a patron who felt that his art was necessary. It was an extremely acute form of trickle-down economics where the overflow of a very localized tide raises some boats. And yet, the historical weight of it was so profound that today, we all know Michelangelo. Today, we realize that for every Michelangelo fortunate enough back then to win the patronage lottery, there were likely dozens more unseen unheard, and unknown to us. Today's technology promises us otherwise. That everyone can be seen, can be heard, and can be known. But we know the price. It's being seen, heard, and known at the pleasure of someone else. Patronage can't make that happen for everyone, nor can advertising. Nor can we, at the dollar's end of those structures, be the patrons for every creator, or the eyeballs for every ad. We're at the far end of scale, where the ratios break down, where the numbers boggle the mind, where the time runs out. If you're a maker, an advertiser, or just a consumer, what I can say to you is the same. Reset your expectations. For everything you might measure, all the how muches and the how manys you track and count towards fame and fortune, and if you're a maker who makes advertisements, a special plea. Stop and think realistically, about how many of what you make will fight their way through the seas of noise to reach the awareness of one person in one day. And think of that person. You have been that person. Even just one moment of reality-induced empathy experienced by all of us who ask of one another's attention could be enough to change the world for the better. Well, friends, that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Design Tomorrow. If you did, take a moment to find the show on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Design Tomorrow exists under the advertising radar. You are my patrons of attention. My audience grows at the pleasure of your voice and nothing else. Last week... My brother texted me after listening to the last episode of the podcast and said that it was refreshing to finally hear some positivity about technology. Now, he was kind of joking. There were some LOLs mixed in there, and he'd probably never have sent me that joke if he knew I was going to read it on air. In fact, when I wrote that the next episode was going to be about advertising, he replied, oh boy, don't make me quit my career. Huh, and then I reminded him what I do for a living. The point is, this show isn't meant to be a downer. Nor is it meant to only be a critique of technology or only a complaint about the degradation of culture. It's from a place of incredible stability and abundance relative to all of human history, made possible largely by technology, that these shows come. And yet, what got you here won't always get you there. We must strive to look upon what we have, where we are, what we do, and most importantly, who we are. With as much objectivity as our circumstances, our tools, and our minds and our egos allow. And from that view, we must be grateful and critical. That's how we grow. That's how we ensure a future. And that's how we make our way toward it. So thank you for listening and for being a part of that almost holy cycle of looking, of questioning, and acting. It's what makes it true to say that what we do today can create a better future. I'll see you then.